coming back, so a lot of driving this weekend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where did you guys end up doing yesterday? Oh, her dad lives by the shoreline. Uh, okay. so yeah, my dad lives in Niantic. And then we nice. attempted to go to the uh, Mystic Light <laughs> Parade, because they, oh, they, yeah. they open the drawbridge and the boats go through all lit up and everything. Oh, that's fun. We should have got there at like 4 o'clock and not try to get there at 5.30, because... There was no parking. There was, it, was, it was chaos. Yeah. There were people like on the road, like literally standing on the middle of the road, like walking. I'm going to kill somebody. I don't want to, but it's going to happen. So once we couldn't find a place to park, we were like, hey, 95, let's just go home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it would have been different had we not had to do church and stuff. Like, we might have tried to keep looking. But by the time we found a parking spot, it would have been... We probably would have missed half of the parade. Well, that's, yeah. yeah. Well, you got Hey, good morning. Good nice Thanksgiving. you said. We both weren't I still don't get the, the back doors. Yeah, I turned it on last night and the lights work, but it doesn't seem like it's picking up. Yeah, the camera doesn't seem like it's working. Yeah. Getting the one from the parking lot, though. It was actually I got one from the back entrance. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah. good. Maybe I'll go look and see if I got one, too. Yeah. Make sure it's actually coming through. Maybe, maybe just stop my phone. <laughs> maybe. I'm ready to mute it all. <laughs> no. Started putting my phone on silent at night. <laughs> yeah. So when it hit, ding, 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 ding. Well, no, well, no. I have not. I, I usually have oh, stuff for vibrate, the, so the <laughs> Yeah. That's annoying. Yeah. So. Get some coffee. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sitting back here so you don't pick on me with any questions. <laughs> so you can't oh, tell my eyes right now. You can't tell him that. I was going to say, gonna that's the worst thing you can do is that I'm hiding from you. Yes. I'll balance it out. Okay, yes. I'll point over to the Guys, I'm just going to start some coffee because this is, uh, I think this is stuff from last Sunday. Just went for the show. It's cold. Are you drinking it? Hey, Glenn! The microwave. How is it? Warm. 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 Guys, still tastes good. We just need fuel. It's not that bad. It takes. It actually tastes pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it takes several weeks for like molds to grow in coffee, yeah, yeah. black coffee. Well, it's enclosed also. Yeah, yeah. So the air's not getting in. Yeah. So you have good things here. Yeah. That's a good trivia question. Waste not, want not. Southern yeah. farm boy. I, I don't get sick, rarely. Uh, like I Are you one of those? I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't get sick a lot, but when I get sick, I get really, really sick. Like, yeah. I, I've been very blessed. I've, I, I've never been hospitalized. Oh, I've no, never, no, no. Yeah. It was cold here and there. But the worst was I had, uh, this was many years ago, I had struck throat. And I, I'm never forget that. I literally was, I put on so many layers, and I, the only way I could not, not have a fever anymore. You know, yeah. Okay. Oh, good to meet you, bro. That's me. Hey, guys. What did you guys do for Thanksgiving? We went to my parents' house. They're down in Westchester, New York. Oh, good. Glad you guys, uh, I realized that I didn't get your last names last week. And so, I'm, we don't have out-of-state family. So, we got together with another couple from the church that are misfits like us. And uh, we were like, we didn't even ask, would they buy themselves? We glad you Oh, I'm preaching this morning. Who's doing it? Did you guys agree to a swap? Yeah. Okay. Kind of. Because I, I had you on for the... I know. I was supposed to be this week, but because I had to 
focus on preaching this morning. He said, I'll just, he just take, he just took it. Okay. So he's going to do the next thing, and I'll pick up. Gotcha. I think right. I'm supposed to. It all evens out in the wash. Like with Ezekiel? Yeah, you get a, one and a half. No, I think I, I, think I, I just looked at the schedule. I think I have Lament, Jeremiah Lamentations. And then Christmas break uh, and then Ezekiel afterwards. Norwich. Oh, okay. And we just moved up there. Uh, two weeks. So you got Jeremiah Lamentation Mark? Yes. Hey, well, yeah. How are you, brother? Good. How are you doing? Hey, Holland. How are you? Good to see you. Um, I think we have a couple of, ex- or a couple of notebooks. I'll get you guys. Great. Yeah, we just, I moved up with the Navy. So. Oh, okay. Are you still in or? Mm. Well, we had to make sure we got coffee going because uh, that's, that's an absolute essential thing. here. <laughs> yeah. Some people are enjoying the coffee. Did so you warm it up? You don't know what you're messing with. Uh, you you guys, guys, my reaction as well. I'm like... <laughs> You'll find out today. <laughs> Whatever is slightly fermented. Whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. There you go. I like that twist of that phrase. That's good. <laughs> you won't like it when, when you find out where it's from. Oh. The Joker from The Dark Knight. Oh, uh, well. You but know. it's still a good line. Hey, you know... It, I guess it could be worse. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. Well, let's pray. We're going to look at Amos and Obadiah today, okay? Uh, and then Caleb's bringing a couple books down for you guys, okay? God, we thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word as we look at the prophets, and particularly Amos and Obadiah. May we hear their calls of warning to be serious about our sin. God, may we run to you in repentance and faith. May we receive your mercy, and God, would you continue to guide us as we walk through the Old Testament together. May we learn more about your holiness, learn more about our sinfulness, and God, learn about the goodness of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh my goodness. They were trying to scare me this whole morning. They were just oh, really? coming up behind me, like while I was talking. Trying to get you. Those guys, huh? All right, so well, welcome back. Come on, you're coming in. Yeah. Come on, come on. Um, we that door closed, please. Bye, Peyton. <laughs> <laughs> she was like 30 seconds away oh, from no. danger. <laughs> awesome. Make sure you see me afterwards. I'll get some findings on this for you guys. Okay. Page 58, they're numbered on the bottom. So yeah, we're we're back. We are looking at the Minor Prophets. Does anybody know why they're called the Minor Prophets? Because their books are smaller. Their books are smaller, okay, okay. Okay. That's actually exactly why. Uh, It's not because they're lesser than the Major Prophets. It's just because the, the writing is more condensed than that of the Major Prophets. Last week, we looked at Hosea and Joel. Caleb led us through that class. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And we learned through their symbolism about God's judgment, God's judgment. But we also learned about his promise to extend grace to those uh, that repent through mercy and hope. And today, as we go into Amos and Obadiah, we're going to see if we can't expand on what we've already learned. So we're going to look first at Amos Flip your Bible over to Amos 1.1. Okay, Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of the king Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Johash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos sets the tone where we are is in the southern kingdom, but his preaching is not going to focus on the southern kingdom. It's going to focus in on the northern kingdom. He also tells us that he was preaching during the reign of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam II in Israel. 
This puts Amos and the writing of this book in roughly what we would call the mid-8th century B.C. That's just a few decades before the fall of the north and shortly before Isaiah undertook his ministry. This was a a time of great economic prosperity, expansion, and security for both kingdoms, north and south. So Amos prophesies after the nation's been divided, but before there's any Assyrian threat in the picture. Both north and south are both standing and standing with strength and confidence. This is a good moment in Israel's history. Like Joel, he used, or like Joel used a locust plague, Amos also uses a historical event to emphasize his message. He mentions in 1-1 that he prophesied two years before, quote-unquote, the earthquake. Okay, so we'll, we'll write that down as something significant. The earthquake. So, a historical event. If you can't read my writing, let me know and I'll switch to all caps that you can read. <laughs> I, I try to do that for people. This marker is on the end of its life, on its tip, but it's working, so that's what counts. Okay, so he's using a historical event to point them to something that's going to happen within God's purposes. Uh, apparently, this was a pretty big earthquake, so big that the prophet, even as late as Zechariah, makes mention of it in Zechariah 4.15. Or we'll get to that in just a moment. But let's talk about the theme of Amos. Okay, so the theme. So the time is around the earthquake, which we said mid-8th century. The theme. Here's what I would call the summary statement for the book of Amos. Yahweh is angry because his people are getting rich by oppressing their own kinsmen and despising the righteous and his word. Do you guys have that in your notes? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Because if I had to write that all out, I'd be like, okay, we're going to be here for a minute. So I'll read that for us again. Yahweh is angry because his people are getting rich by oppressing their own kinsmen and despising the righteous and his word. So while we have a time of great economic prosperity, a time of security in the land, a time where it feels like everything is going just according to plan, in the background of all of that is the pride and selfishness of the human heart. Just like the last prophets that we looked at, we'll see these recurring themes that Yahweh is angry because of sin. And because of that sin, he then calls them to repentance lest they break out his wrath, okay? So he's giving them the warning that he's angry because of sin. He's righteously angry. And if they don't respond, he will respond with his wrath. In this book, Yahweh is angry about two things. So the first thing that he's angry about is uh, his own people... Uh, acting corruptly. So I'm just going to put corruption as the first thing. Corruption within Israel. Okay. And then two, he is angry because his people despise those who are righteous. Okay. So again, the, the anger is geared towards the people of Israel, first because of their corruption, and then second because of their lack of what I would call heeding the word. They're not embracing the message of the righteous people. And what Amos is saying with the earthquake is that if these people don't repent from their sinful economic practices, Yahweh will come in judgment and shake the earth unlike any earthquake 
they've ever experienced. And you can imagine how unpopular this made Amos, right? He was probably not the guy that everybody wanted to be around within the nation. Only a generation later, after this, the north was then swept away by the Assyrians. It was a swift fall from a very lofty place for Israel. They reached these heights of security, prosperity. They failed to repent, and the Assyrians wiped them away. So within some of these themes, we're going to look at two ideas. So Amos's message. First, the first part of Amos's message is... That God judges the nations. Could you just clarify uh, when you said uh, one year later the north is wiped away by Assyria? Are you considering the north to be Israel at that point, or God's people, or? The Northern Kingdom, yes. And I said one generation later. Okay. So it's not necessarily a year, but a generation. <laughs> it's quite a difference in time frame. <laughs> no. No. Um, yeah. So yes, the Northern Kingdom. <clears throat> so as we look at this first idea that God judges the nations, the focus, though the focus of this book is particularly on the nation of Israel, in the first chapters of Amos, there are prophecies around the, or for the surrounding nations. So look at uh, Amos 1.3. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they uh, threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Okay? So we have Damascus in 1.3. In 1.6, if you look down, it says, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza. For three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. And then in one nine, where it says, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty to brotherhood. And then in one thirteen, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because... He pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. And then in one thirteen, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant woman of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. And then in two one, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. You notice that there's a repetition of a pattern, right? I will not relent from punishing nation for three crimes, even four. There's this, this repetition that Amos is using. Those are just some of the Gentile nations that are around Amos in his day. But note what God judges them for. He judged Damascus because they have Gilead with threshing sleds of iron. That is because she pillaged and robbed the Gilead barren. God then judges Gaza because they carried into exile whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And later on, it says that God judged Edom because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And Amon, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. These are sins of cruelty, oppression, slavery, and murder. They are big and obvious crimes. They are what we would call like war crimes on a grand scale. <clears throat> Even though the Gentile nations had not received God's revealed law or been given ta- tablets with the Ten Commandments, they could not plead ignorance of his moral law. The Gentile nations cannot escape the judgment of God. God's judgment of the Gentile nations then demonstrates, in light of that, his universal king, king, or kingship. God made Israel to be his special people. But God is rightfully the sovereign over all people, over all nations, under heaven. And what we see here is in his judgment of the nations is that he will hold them all accountable 
and make his universal sovereignty known. And this isn't the first time we've seen God working within the nation that's outside of his own people, right? Where was the other place that we've seen God exercising his universal kingship over the people? What's that? Egypt. Egypt, yeah, in Exodus, right? So over Pharaoh, right, particularly. He's saying that he was going to make through Pharaoh an example where the whole world would know his power and his might. Right. Whether or not you've heard the gospel, you are accountable for your actions. And you will answer to God one day for your sins. So, you know, the idea that that people aren't going to have to respond for their sinfulness just is not a message that we see consistently in the Bible anywhere. All people, when we see all people there, all people will have to give an answer for their sin. Was Hammurabi's code in the Gilead stone not widespread previous to this by about a thousand years? What, what do you mean? What, where, what's the implication there? The moral law was wide, widely known regardless of what was expected. There was general expectations on common knowledge. Yeah, that's what I said. That And the idea while God's revealed law through the Ten Commandments and the tablets wasn't known to the Gentile nations, his moral law was known. Right? So whether that be through the writing of other nations, there is a sense in what what is right and what is wrong, right? They still have some sort of moral standard to live by. Um, and that moral standard continues to make them accountable to God. Okay? So the second idea of the message of Amos, it, outside of God <laughs> judging the nations, is that God judges his people. God judges his people. It's not that God stops at judging the nations, but that he especially judges his people. If those people who were outside of the nation of Israel were still accountable because of the moral law, then the people of God who knew the revealed law of God were then even more so accountable because they knew the Lord. So in chapter 2, there begins a prophecy against Judah. And in 2.6, Amos begins a long prophecy against Israel. With those first prophecies, the covenant people would have applauded Amos because those nations have long been the enemies of Israel and Judah. But then Amos says, not so fast there, Israel and Judah. Your sins are not overlooked either. In fact, the prophets are often a lot more critical and condemning of the covenant people of God than the non-covenant people of God. And it's just for that reason, because they know, they should know. They are in covenant with Yahweh, and they ought to know better than the Gentiles. So look at chapter 3, verse 2. Matt, can you read that? Matt, how? <laughs> Sorry. Right, right. <laughs> I'm going to read it. <laughs> you can read the next one, okay? Oh. <laughs> you only have I known, you only have I known, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So they were supposed to be the lights to the Gentiles, right? The, these people of God, the covenant people, they were supposed to display the glories of the only true God. But instead, they behaved just as corruptly and immorally as the Gentiles. And sometimes they were even worse. There are two broad categories of sins Israel is judged for. Okay. So, this for us. Okay, the two categories of sin. The first is political corruption. <clears throat> and when we put this, we put even social corruption too. And maybe corruption is not the right word. Maybe it's better said injustice. We'll do, we'll do that. Political slash social. That's a little bit more wide. It's net. Political or social injustice. And the second are the sin, what we call religious sin, 
particularly idolatry. They were guilty of idolatry, also guilty of neglecting the word. And maybe we can even put a third, which would be the idea that they were guilty of faithfulness to the covenant. guilty of faithfulness to the covenant. So first is the idea that Israel was experiencing a brief period of luxury in history or luxury and peace. In their plenty, they were full of social and political injustice. So while their period of luxury and peace may have looked like everything was working according to plan, it wasn't working according to plan because it often meant that injustice led them to this peace and luxury. Man, isn't that true today, huh? (laughs) God says in in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample on the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. In 4.1, he announced his word to uh, to the women where he said, you who oppress the poor who crush the needy. In chapter 5, verses 10 and 12, he then goes on to say, They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. You afflict the righteous and take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So Israel was guilty of slavery, of corruption, of bribery, of favoritism towards the rich, and exploitation of the poor. Precisely contrary to God's will for them, God had shown specific concern for the poor in his law. He told Israel, you shall never pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit in Exodus 23, verse 6. He said, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. That's Deuteronomy 5 or 15, 11. Israel in the time of Amos mocked God's concern for the poor, where they may have heard it very easily within the giving of the law when they were all good and everything seemed like it was working according to plan. They mocked God's law and they forgot his commands. I hope the same is not true for us. God is clear that he will hold his people accountable for how they act and treat others in this life, right? It's the golden rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are Jesus' words. And remember what he said in Matthew 25, that when he returns to judge the world, that that judgment will be based on how we treat other people, particularly those who were trotted down in the world. In James, he echoes the same kind of concern. In James 1.27, where he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as we look at Israel, we should also look to ourselves and ask this kind of question. How is our heart's attitude toward those that are needy? How's our heart's attitude toward money? Do we crave it for ourselves or welcome it as a tool that God has lent us for life and ministry? Is money something that we want in and of ourselves or is it a tool that God has given us to use for his purposes and his glory? Maybe even as we think of that, we think of how we have an attitude towards giving to the church. Maybe you practice tithing, maybe you practice a different principle when you think of giving to the church what's your initial heart attitude is it in joy or is it out of a resentment or an obligation without any sort of affection that's tied to it we get to give to the lord's work 
It's an opportunity. Opportunity to, to work with, with the Lord. How do we care for the poor? The poor and the needy, right? We, we don't want to become social justice warriors. We want to become gospel warriors. And in light of that, sometimes the evangelical world really struggles to see how we can blend the two together in a way that's fruitful and God-glorifying and is indeed actually spreading the gospel. Right? Like we just did Operation Christmas Child. We had all those boxes we gathered. We're going to send out. They're going to go to these various places within the world. We are giving people things like toothbrushes and deodorant and shampoo. Those are all good things. But at the heart of that, they are receiving some sort of gospel tract and a Bible that comes with that, that gift. That's good news, right? And we hope that beyond all the things that we packed into those boxes, that that Bible is the most important thing that they receive. Now, that doesn't mean the Samaritan's Purse is doing this gloriously or that there's fruit necessarily from these efforts. We can't trace it down and say that this has worked perfectly according to plan. But we shouldn't avoid doing something like that and helping somebody in need just because we can't say without a shadow of a doubt that they're going to receive the gospel and become Christians. Jesus talked about spreading the gospel like the parable of the sower, right? You sow seed. Some of it's going to fall on rocky ground and the birds are going to take it and they're going to lift it away and it's not going to take root. And there are going to be other times where it takes root, but then the thorns of the world are going to crush it out. And there's going to be some seed that is taken and it's received and then it multiplies its fruit. But only God gets to determine how that works. We just have to be faithful to the opportunities that are in front of us. Here at Hebrew Church of Hope, we have a benevolence fund that actually helps those that are in need as well, particularly those that are within need within our church. And as we think about benevolence, are we finding ourselves inwardly thinking that that fund could be a waste of time or a waste of hard-earned dollars that could go toward other things. That's not the right attitude to have toward our benevolence fund. Have we reached out to those that are unemployed within the church to see if their needs are being met? Have we gravitated toward the prosperous in the church because they don't need as much help, they're easier to care for? There's a verse in my Bible against that. Hmm. I hope it's in most Bibles then. (laughs) Are we tempted by pride and arrogance in these things? Are we tempted by our own selfishness rather than that of reaching out to others? Second, God's people are judged for their religious sins. And here's what they're judged for. Uh, here's where they're judged differently than their Gentile neighbors, right? Their Gentile neighbors could have been totally guilty of the political and social injustice. In fact, we can say pretty confidently they were guilty of political and social injustice. But God's people were judged differently because of their religious sin. Judah's condemned because they have rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept his statutes But their lies have led them astray. That's chapter 2, verse 4. Israel commanded the prophets, hear this, commanded the prophets not to prophesy. That's in chapter 2, verse 12. They were apparently practicing cult prostitution, which Amos alludes to when he says that a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside their every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. It's Amos 2, verses 7 and 8. And they belittled God and people's vows to him, for example, by making Nazarites drink wine, something a Nazarite had vowed not to do. Chapter 2, verse 12. What we learn here is that God's election is not a blank check to responsibility, okay? Or irresponsibility. I'm going to write that down for you because I think that's a really helpful thought. God's election, the doctrine of election, is not a blank check to 
irresponsibility. So let me just play this out for you in, in layman's terms real quick, okay? So the idea of God's election, right? God choosing, God knowing who he's going to save. If we responded to his election in a way that was irresponsible, it would look something like this. Well, I know God saved me, so therefore how I live does not matter. Okay? Now, God's election is not a blank check to just live free. Carpe diem, do it as we want, right? God's election is all there for the more a quote of our responsibility to walk out ways that are glorifying to him. Election actually heightens one's responsibility to live uprightly before the Lord. And some people reject the doctrine of election because they say that it undermines the Christian's responsibility to live a holy life. They say, well, if God knows and he chooses, therefore, it doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter how we think. It doesn't matter what we practice. So that idea, if God's sovereign, then we're just all a bunch of robots that have been wound up and set off so that they can just live however God has put into his plan. Well, God's election also comes with, indeed, the idea of human agency, that we have to work in a way that glorifies the Lord, that we still have to wrestle with sin, right? Now, you and I made a conscious choice to come here this morning. God ordained that. He knew that that was going to happen. But we still had to get up out of bed. Still had to get dressed. Still had to hop in the car. Still had to drive here. So it's not that we were unwilling participants in the matter, but rather that though God knows all things, he works all things together, that we still indeed have a responsibility. The prophets certainly don't think that election leaves us irresponsible. They see election as something that should be weighed heavily on the people's minds as they continually say to them, hey, you've been called out. Let's think about that, friends. God has saved you. He's redeemed you. So therefore, hey, think about how you live. You've been separated. You've been made holy. You've been set apart for a special purpose. To live holy lives in the fear of Yahweh, demonstrating his holiness to onlookers. Fulfill your high and privileged calling. Be who you are specially called to be. Election never leads to presumption but greater responsibility. God's people have been given his revealed will and so are capable of a greater sin, neglecting his word. So again, in chapter three, verse two, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's speaking to these people saying, I, I know you personally. We have a special relationship unlike the Gentile nations of the world. Therefore, by your sin, I'm going to punish you for your iniquities. In fact, this is the same thing that we see in the New Testament in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 15, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You may see that verse uh, later today in my blog post that should be scheduled to go out. Since last week, it just went to me. But that's that. <laughs> 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul, too, tells us that the, that the intended end of predestination is holiness. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the second idea is that we learn that God judges his people for sin. The third message of Amos is that God judges with justice and certainty. God will judge the nations and he will judge his people. Amos also talks about the character and cause of, the, of God's judgment. In Amos 7 through 9, 
we see that God will judge with certainty and with justice. God gives Amos a series of visions about his judgment. So let's look at one of them. Flip over to Amos chapter 7. Look at verses 7 through 9. Hey, Matt, Joseph, can you read that one? Amen. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise again in the house of Jeroboam with the sword. A plumb line is a cord with a weight on the end. A craftsman or an engineer holds one end of the cord. The weight ensures that the cord hangs straight up and down. It's a tool to determine true vertic- verticality. I couldn't believe that that's a word, but this verticality used to measure how well a how well built a wall is. In other words, a plumb line is a perfect standard. So, in this vision, God is measuring Israel against his perfect standard and he finds them wanting the focus is on the perfection and precision of his judgment as jesus would say in the sermon on the mount you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect matthew 5:48 because god's standard is perfection god justly finds us wanting and judges us accordingly in a later passage in matthew 19 Jesus' disciples rightly despaired about the possibility of salvation, understanding that because God's standard is perfection, salvation is simply impossible for sinful people. How then can we be saved? Only by a perfect God. The last uh, message of Amos is that God judges with mercy. He judges with mercy. Remember in last week's classes, Caleb was talking about the, the pattern of accusation, judgment, the call to repentance, and then mercy. Do you remember that pattern being established? Good. That's, that's good. So there, there is a pattern. And, and last week, as we saw, the prophets always end on grace and mercy. No matter how long the accusations and the pronouncements of judgments are, no matter how long the list of the offending nations the prophets always end their message with the promise of salvation. Amos foreshadows his conclusion earlier in the book. He tells the people how they can escape the coming judgment, and that way is through repentance. Like in Amos 5, verses 14 and 15, where he says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate, it may be the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. God even displays his mercy in action. In chapter 7, God gives Amos two visions of judgment, fire and a plague of locusts. Both times, Amos cries out and asks God for forgiveness. And both times, the Lord relents. Amos returns to the promise of mercy and salvation at the book's conclusion. He prophesies about the coming day of judgment, the day of the Lord. God says in in chapter 9, verse 11, In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. This day is a day of judgment, but this day will also see the restoration of David's fallen tent the division of the kingdom and of the exile. Yahweh will remember his promises of old and the people will again taste Yahweh's covenant love. He continues to say in verses 14 and 15, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them says the Lord your God. This is a picture of the new creation after God's final judgment in Christ's return. 
a return to the paradise that God always intended for us to enjoy. But note how these last verses are a reversal of the earlier judgment that was pronounced in chapter 5, verse 11, where God said there, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell on them. You, shall, you have planted pleasure, pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. God's reversing the judgment that he's pronounced on them. Amos is saying that those who desire to be rich should seek justice, that they should be righteous and put their hope in Christ for their reward to be had is not in, the, in this world, it's in the coming world. That's a theme that Jesus later picks up on when he tells his followers to store up their treasure in what? In heaven and to give to the poor on earth. So finally, we see that God's mercy extends to all people, including the Gentiles. Look at 9 verse 12. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. The promises that are restored to Israel will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who call on the name of the Lord. Now, is that possess a good thing for the nations? Meaning that they get to share in Israel's blessing? Or is it the possess of conquer? Well, Acts 15 tells us that James is speaking at that point to the, the council of Jerusalem and he's trying to figure out what to make of all the Gentiles that are turning in faith to Christ. And remarkably, in, Gen- or in Acts chapter 15, James is actually quoting this passage that's here in Amos 9.12. James is saying that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, David's house is rebuilt and can be in a home for, for Jews and Gentiles alike. Now all who repent just as Amos was preaching, and put their faith in Jesus, are included in this eschatological salvation, this end times salvation, this new creation. So that's the message of Amos in just a few minutes. We're going to have to fly through Obadiah. I think we can do it. Can you join up there with faithfulness to the what? Covenant. 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 Yep. Sorry, I'm late, Jordan. Oh, it's all good. How are you? Good and not so good. Okay. Well, it's good to see you. <laughs> okay. We're not going to talk negative today. So. Good. <laughs> you came to the right kind of class. <laughs> We're going to look at Obadiah, another prophet that calls out sin. <laughs> okay. So we saw in, in Amos 9.12 how that there was a prophecy that Israel will exercise sovereignty over the nation of Edom. And the entire book of Obadiah is an extension of that verse. So Obadiah is like this giant vision from the Lord, explanation from the Lord of Amos 9.12. Obadiah is unique in that he is the only prophet we've studied so far to address neither the northern or southern kingdoms. Instead, Obadiah's prophecy is directed entirely toward the Gentile nation of Edom. Edom is significant because their relationship with the covenant people goes a long way back. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's brother. Edom is Israel's neighbor. And, or, I'm sorry, Israel and Judah's national cousin. And they are the oppressive cousin and neighbor of the nation. So this book is about Yahweh's covenant commitment to defend and vindicate his people's enemies. We could simply summarize Obadiah's message like this. We could say, Yahweh will judge those who arrogantly mistreat his people. You guys have that one too? Glorious. Yahweh will judge those who arrogantly mistreat his people. Edom had a long history of arrogantly mistreating the covenant people of God. You can read about that in Genesis 27. Numbers 20, 1 Samuel 14, and 2 Samuel 8. And now Yahweh's long-suffering with them has come to an end. Further, and this is where we get 
we'll get our application. The day of the Lord, which is a day of reckoning for all nations, is in view here. This makes Edom a type pointing to all the nations of the last days, especially those who would arrogantly mistreat God's people. So we're going to break down uh, Obadiah into three sections. So Obadiah... One through nine, Obadiah, ten through, is it fourteen? Fourteen. Fourteen, yeah. And then Obadiah, fifteen through twenty-one, right? Seventeen. Seventeen. Seventeen through twenty-one, right? Twenty-seven. Twenty-one. Twenty-one. Yeah, yeah. I got one of them. And then 15. I wonder why. Okay. So the first section is the, the sentence, which is coming destruction. Coming destruction. God promises to judge Edom repeatedly throughout the first nine verses. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised, verse 2. Verse 4, I will bring you down. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, verse 6. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the, the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount, Zion, or Mount Esau, verse 8. For their sins, God will judge the nations on the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near upon the, all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Verse 15. Obadiah echoes the message Amos had for all the nations surrounding Israel in Amos 1. All nations and people are accountable to God for their actions. And that's especially relevant to us today. Because Obadiah was announcing judgment against people that did not know God, that did not acknowledge him, and had not placed, had not uh, a place for him in their lives. So in other words, people very much like our non-Christian neighbors and co-workers, while we, were, we may not want to start sharing the gospel with them by reading Obadiah together, <laughs> this warning should ring in our ears and spur some zeal in our evangelism. This is the judgment that awaits our friends who do not know the living God. The second is, outside of sentence, we have the charge, which is oppressing God's people. That's some good background music. Why was God judging Edom? What were their sins? Well, early in the book, God indicts the Edomites specifically for their pride. Look at verse 3, where their, their pride is especially mentioned. Your arrogant heart has deceived you who live in the clefts of the rock and your homes on the heights. Who can say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? <laughs> they lived in the mountains and their capital, Petra, was virtually what was known as being impregnable. They couldn't come into the city. And thus, a lot of people believed that they were unconquerable. So they taunt, who can bring me down to the ground? Well, in verse 4, Yahweh says, he will bring them down. <laughs> exactly because of how highly they regard themselves. But God promises judgment primarily because Edom oppressed God's people. And this is an interesting addition to the prophet's message, or the prophet's messages as a whole. We saw in Amos that the pagan nations were judged for general cruelty and that God's people are judged for apostasy. Now we have one entire book in the Bible that especially and specifically is written to announce judgment on a pagan nation for how it treated God's people. The message is that God cares for his own. So look at verses 10 and 11. Anybody need me to define apostasy? No, I will gladly. Okay. So apostasy, the idea of pro- professing a faith but not living by it. 
So, like, I think in, is it in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, uh, they, they announce that they have faith in God, but they deny, or deny the power of, of godliness. So the idea of saying, I belong to him, but I'm going to live however I want to live. Thank you. You're welcome. So in verses 10 and 11, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence sent to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. He goes on for another few verses about how Edom either stood by passively while others oppressed God's people or actively took part in the oppression. As I just mentioned, there are a number of examples of Edom's violence against the covenant people. So it's hard to say which one exactly is referred to here. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is that God cares for his people, that he will protect them. He will come to their aid and vindicate them. For the, the oppressor, the day of reckoning is coming. They cannot forever mistreat Yahweh's people. So have you ever been persecuted? Ever been discouraged? Ever been mocked for your faith? Have you lived in a country where preaching the word of God was illegal? Did your family shun you when you were converted? And when you put your, your trust in Christ? God knows and cares and he will vindicate you in the end. He is your protector. In Obadiah 17 through 21, the result is the establishment of God's kingdom. The establishment of God's kingdom. It's a day of salvation in vindication for the once persecuted people of God. Obadiah prophesies that the land of Edom will be peopled by God's people and the land will become part of God's kingdom. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, verse 19. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, verse 21. In the end, God's people are vindicated God triumphs and his salvation of his people is completed. As we read that section, I'm reminded uh, about the New Testament's teaching of Christ's return, the final day of the Lord. The book of Revelation, for example, is a sustained vision of Christ's universal kingship and God's ultimate authority over sin, death, and hell. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9, where it says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Until that day, though, Jesus gives us directions about how to handle our persecution and our enemies. Matthew 5, 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The idea is, Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord's provision. Trust in the Lord's time. Trust in the Lord's sovereignty. He will provide. He will protect. He will care. His kingdom will be established. So we've learned a lot from the minor prophets. We've learned about sin, about wrath, about redemption. And we've learned about the day of the Lord, about Christ's first and second comings. And we've learned about our responsibilities here in between those two advents, those two times. Next week, we'll learn some more from Jonah and Micah. Okay. Let's pray, and we can go worship the Lord with the rest of the church body. Good job, Jordan. Thank you. 10 o'clock on the dot. <laughs> Father, we thank you.
that you are in control, that your power and justice is known. God, though our sin is great, your mercy is greater. And as we think about the message of the minor prophets, we look to our own hearts today and say, God, we can be guilty of the same sin patterns we see in the people of God in Amos and in those that are not the people of you in Obadiah. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are quick to respond to to the confrontation of our sin, that we would do so with submission to you, that we would trust in your righteousness, that we would embrace your forgiveness, your salvation, and your mercy. And may we spur one another on all the more as we see the day drawing near, the new advent, the second coming of our Lord and Savior. May we look to him who holds all things together to establish your kingdom. May we be faithful in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Till next time. Next week we will be in Jonah and Micah. And if you need the reading schedule for that, here's an idea for you. Read all of Jonah on Monday. Jonah 1 and 2 on Tuesday. Jonah 3 and